Welcome to the Baptist Review Podcast. I'm your host, David Sons, and this is our fourth interview with SBC President Bart Barber. And in this interview, Bart, we want to talk, I know in most of our interviews leading up to this, we've talked about kind of uh, issues and structural things within the SBC. But in this interview, we want to talk about just the culture of the convention as a whole, and then kind of towards the very end, talk a little we bit about- We have culture? We do have culture. Okay. Uh, we're, we're swimming in it. Um, and at the very end, I want to talk a little bit about the annual meeting, about this year, about some things that uh, maybe uh, we can look forward to this year, things that uh, might be changing or whatnot. But uh, Griffin Gulledge is with me on this interview as well. Uh, and so, uh, Griffin, thanks for thanks for being here, and, and uh, thanks for jumping back yeah, I'm glad to be part of the conversation. We we have deep culture. We have barbecue. We have RAs and GAs, Adventures and Odyssey. Glory <laughs> and hallelujah. Oh, amen. Adventures yeah, and Odyssey. Yeah, yeah. Great. I mean, I, we have subculture. Uh, I, so, Bart, one of the things that I've noticed kind of happening, uh, and, uh, you know, you are a much more credible Baptist historian than I am. This perhaps has been happening all throughout Baptist history, but, but really I've noticed it more recently is this kind of growing number of virtual and kind of affinity-based associations, whereas at one point we kind of saw more local. I mean, you had to be an association of churches that were local to you because those were the churches that you knew and those were the churches that you lived near and they were in your community. But now, because of the world we live in, there is kind of more virtual or even affinity-based associations. I'm thinking Pillar Network, I'm thinking Nine Marks, ACME, the Conservative Baptist Network. Is is growth of these kind of affinity-based networks, associations within the convention? Is that a good thing for the SBC as a whole? And and how do they kind of affect the future of regional or local associations? I think you can identify it as, if not a totally new thing, something that is certainly accelerated because telecommunications technology right, sure. has made this more feasible uh, than other things. They're not all brand new. Uh, Acme's been around as long as the Roadrunner, and mm, true, uh, that, that's uh, true. You should probably take that out of yeah, podcast. Well, we that may, have, yeah, <laughs> that yeah, may no. make somebody mad, yeah. but uh, no, keep it in. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, I, I don't. I think it's neutral. Mm. I don't. I don't think it's helpful or harmful in and of itself for the convention. Honestly, anything that we do in the Southern Baptist Convention to build more relationships and connections with people has the potential of being something really good. The people I'm concerned about are not the people who have a robust network of friends. The people I'm concerned about are the ones who are just sitting on the outside wondering if they belong anywhere at all. Uh, but certainly once those kinds of groups form, uh, they have to decide that they want to be a part of the bigger group too. Yeah. And as long as they do that, I think it can be something that's very beneficial for the yeah. convention. Yeah, Bart, one one of the questions that well, it's not in our list of questions we have here, but um, you know, you're 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 not a spring chicken to Baptist life. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say that you're like a, a you know a retirement age yet, but you've been around. What has changed in SBC culture? Like you, you know, Martin Marty called Southern Baptist the Catholics of the South at one <laughs> point. That's just not true anymore. And I'd like to hear you just reflect on the ways in which um, our our broad subculture has changed, but then also the more internal dynamics of our convention have changed in the time that you've been involved in the SBC. That's a that's a broad question. Um, I think that Southern Baptists, along with most other substantial, significantly large religious movements in the U.S., um, are affected by secular culture around us and always have been. Sure. Uh, uh, as much as we affect this culture around us, uh, at least, maybe more sometimes. And so if you take a look at um, what's happening in the secular culture around us, that people are becoming more isolated, more distrustful, um, more gullible in some ways. Mm. Um, and... Um, and we, I, I preached about this last year at the annual meeting, uh, what we, what we find joy in sometimes is a good conspiracy theory or a takedown or, you know, some things that are, that are really negative. And, um, I think that that's something that has affected the culture of the Southern Baptist Convention. Social media has had a substantial effect on the culture of the, of the actual meeting itself. 
uh, I, we've had multiple times now that I could document that the Southern Baptist Convention thought one thing on Tuesday and another thing on Wednesday, and what changed in between was the social media discussion mm. about what had happened on Tuesday that formed a new opinion in the messenger body on Wednesday. The Confederate flag debate, That's for a sure. perfect example of um, that. Even, even probably the, the waiver of privilege. The alt-right amendment, yeah. Uh, yeah. waiver of privilege. Yeah, several of those things that we could point to that fall right into that camp. And um, In some ways, the law amendment debate last year was heavily affected by social media. In some ways, certainly everything's affected by social media now, but I'm talking about the phenomenon where Social media changes the perspective the yeah. Room. Yeah. during the during meeting. the meeting. Yeah. You see a change. Not, not in several perspective. months of social media leading up to the meeting, but during the meeting, the messenger body is informed and changes opinion based upon what's happening in social media, and um, and and some of that I think shows up in the way that people talk about the platform. Platforms are pejorative now, and yeah. um, and some of that's because it's it's being pitted against an alternate source of truth about what's going on in the convention. And that alternate source of truth is social media. Well, we all saw you cut the mics last year. So, <laughs> gosh, Oh man. I tell you, uh, I, I, I need to go back and watch the video and see how many shades the fa color of my face changed uh, when I realized that those microphones were not working. I don't think it changed much. I think it was consistently dark red all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, you said social media, but you were going on about ways about our convention's culture changing beyond that as well. Sure. Um, our convention, um, uh, there are a hundred rabbit trails that I could go down with that. I'll say this, just something that I've personally written about and been concerned about for a long time. I think our the, conven the convention's culture is a lot le less Baptist than it used to be in some substantial ways. Uh, people, and this is no slight on any of my predecessors, uh, because I know it's not true of all of my predecessors. I'm just making a general observation. Uh, people after the annual meeting came up to me, people who agree with me generally on stuff, disagree with me generally on stuff, and say, and they said, wow, you conducted the meeting well, fairly. You really know Robert's rules of order. You seem to be really comfortable doing that. And I thought, I do this every four weeks. At First Baptist Church of Farmersville, we have business meetings that I conduct over and over again. And I think um, I'm not going to identify specific things, but I'll just say that there have been moments in our convention's recent history, by which I mean the last 30 years, where I've seen people who are very successful in their own church struggle to try to exert influence over the Southern Baptist Convention. And I think part of the reason is that they've been people who had very little exposure to congregationalism and had very little understanding of how it is that you uh, that you conduct uh, a meeting that's broadly congregational. Even people who don't like congregationalism in their own home church, when they're messengers of the convention, they want it to be congregational there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, There's so. a book that just came out called The Great Dechurching. I don't know if you've seen this. Michael Graham, I think Ryan Burge is involved in it, Jim Davis. I'm familiar uh, with it. I hope that I get to read books again starting yeah. at June well, 13th. The clock uh, is ticking. Yeah. Yeah. This sociological study says one of the things that's changed in our church culture is that um, I'll even— I'll tell you, I know you're trying to say something important, yeah. but one of the big changes in my life, having been elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention, is that— Tons of people send me books, <laughs> yeah, and I have no time to read no any time of them anymore. June, yeah. June is coming, yeah. But in the, in this book, they say that while it's still true among evangelicals and, and also Southern Baptists, uh, that the majority of churches are under a hundred people, they also conclude the majority of church goers attend churches that are over two hundred and fifty people. And so, as as people are migrating to larger and larger churches, I would think that. Along with that would probably be diminished exposure to democratic processes and congregationalism and church business meetings because the larger your churches get, it seems to be a trend that it's more top-down. It's more staff-led. Yeah, 
and it's not only congregationalism. It's also uh, uh, the troubling, gradual withdrawal from universal religious liberty that's happening in some quarters in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, everyone in everyone named in the Baptist history book that you studied in seminary is rolling over in their graves every time someone who calls themselves a Baptist advocates for the establishment of Nicene theology as the as the theology of the state. Uh, so um, there's 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 that movement away from Baptist thought. Uh, there's just there are a number of ways that I think our our culture is becoming more blandly evangelical and less Baptist. But I am encouraged by the way that there are movements gaining ground against that. I, I would give credit to uh, the Nine Marks movement as a movement that is robustly Baptist and um, and is advocating for that uh, within our family of churches and uh, a few old uh, codgers like me who are trying to 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 promote that vision as well. Bart, one of the common kind of complaints, and this is really from all sides, I think we talked about this maybe a little bit earlier, is that it seems to be that tribalism and infighting are kind of destroying or at least significantly hindering our ability to cooperate where there, I think we talked about this earlier, that the trust, uh, the, the trust deficit that we see in the SBC and perhaps maybe a, a more loyalty to a tribe of people than, than actually to, to, the, to the truth or, or even if it may reflect poorly on us. And I think that would be something that I most Southern Baptists would probably point to and say, hey, this is something that we see that we feel like is significantly hindering our ability to cooperate. I know one of the things that you've tried to do as president, you talked about this a minute ago, restoring trust, mm -hmm. fairness in the annual meeting, ensuring that people, all voice, you know, folks have the opportunity to be heard, even if the decision goes against them, they at least feel like they've had the opportunity to persuade the room. In what ways have you tried to, to counteract some of this kind of tribalism and infighting and and then maybe even just be reflective and say, are there things that that you have done as president or or, or led that you would say maybe even has contributed to that in some form or fashion? I'm going to define what tribalism is first. Okay, I think it's great. Um, there's not a thing wrong with you having your set of beliefs, and there's not a thing wrong with you connecting with people who believe similarly to you, and there's not a thing wrong with with people you're connected with who believe similarly to you, articulating your beliefs or promoting them. And if that's what people mean by tribalism, I think I don't really see any problem with that. Um, as long as those views are views that match up with who the Southern Baptist Convention is. Sure, uh, under the broader if you're umbrella. Trying to, if you're the group of people who are trying to convince the Southern Baptist Convention to walk away from the Trinity or to start sprinkling infants sure. or to abandon religious liberty or to do some of these things that are core beliefs that aren't even just Southern Baptist beliefs. They're things that extend beyond us to the key markers of what it means to be Baptist. Then, you know, at that point, you probably would be more comfortable somewhere else, and I'd surely be comfortable with you somewhere else. <laughs> uh, but, um, but beyond that, you know, just to have some some differing views on things that fall within the Baptist faith of message and are uh, you know compatible with who we are as Baptists. Um, nothing wrong with uh, aligning with people and trying to pr promote your point of view. I think tribalism, in, as a pejorative, comes down to this. Um, when you cannot conceive of or admit wrongs done by people on your team or cannot conceive of or admit rights done, good things done by people who are on the other team, Another team because yeah. it's all about what jersey somebody's wearing. Not what are you for, but who are you with? Yeah, and that kind of thing I think is uh, – very destructive uh, for for us as uh, as Southern Baptists or even as Americans. Um, I have I have tried. I, I mean, I'm going to give you the opportunity to ask about specific things if you want to that that you think are ways that I've contributed to that. But I'll tell you, I've I've appointed people from the CBN to uh, presidential appointments. Uh, I've appointed people from all sorts of different theological viewpoints to presidential appointments. I've been criticized 
for the ways that I've appointed people who don't agree with me about things uh, to positions within the convention. And I have tried in interacting with people uh, who believe differently than I have, even people that I just disagree profoundly with. I've tried to uh, make it about the ideas and not about the people. And um, I think I think those things are important. You're not going to cure tribalism by telling people, well, you just can't believe what you believe or you just can't talk about it. <laughs> right, sure. Um, instead, it's got to be trying to establish some sort of some sort of a ground rule of civility in the way that we interact over our differences. Now, Bart, I, I appreciate that, but I, I will say, I, I think that some of your critics would say that, well, for you, tribalism is really, you know, it's when other people do it and not when you do it. Uh, and so let me that bring was, up. That's possible. I'll tell you, I'm human. And well, of I, course. I mean, yeah, no. of course. Let me, let me give a, a couple of specific examples here. here we I, go. I'd love to hear what you have to say. <laughs> Um, I'll give a little background here. Dusty Devers has been a vocal crit critic of yours. I think Dusty would identify as a, a Christian nationalist. He certainly identifies as an abortion abolitionist and has been a vocal critic of the pro-life movement um, and of, of your writing on pro-life pro -life issues. Uh, Dusty is a pastor who recently ran for and won um, office as a state senator in Oklahoma. And in the course of that election, it came out that you had donated to his Republican primary opponent. And, and I think maybe some of the minor criticisms would say, you know, Bart, that was petty. That was just like sort of petty uh, slap at somebody that, uh, you don't really care for whose positions you don't care for. Your worst critics would say, this is the exact sort of divisive tribalism of like, I'm not just going to disagree with you, but I'm going to try and defeat you. Even though you're a Southern Baptist, I'm a Southern Baptist. When you hear those criticisms on that issue, how do you respond? Well, that didn't come to anybody's knowledge because I revealed it. Uh, I could have gone to Oklahoma and spoken at campaign rallies for the pro-life conservative candidate that I gave a little bit of money to in that race, but I didn't do any of that. I just quietly, privately made a political contribution, and I don't think I'm the first president of the SBC to make a political contribution. Mm -hmm. I didn't try to make it personal. I didn't try to make it public. Uh, other people are the ones who did that. Um, the I'll, I'll tell you this. Um, uh, I'm after that primary election was done. Dusty was uh, facing a a, a pro-abortion Democrat, and I would have voted for Dusty if I'd been voting in that in that general election in that district. And I'm thankful that he won that election. Uh, but uh, to make this discernible to people and to and to and to help people to understand how it's really not personal. Uh, and it's not tribal in the sense of who I'm with rather than what I'm for. Uh, anytime uh, I know of anyone who is seeking public office in the United States who is committed to having a Christian establishment of religion in the United States and wants to hold public office in the United States, if there is a pro-life conservative Republican uh, option in a primary election, other than them, I'm likely to give that other candidate a little bit of money. Okay. Well, I'm just really committed to religious liberty, and that shouldn't surprise anybody. It's not about Dusty, because before I knew who Dusty was, I've been writing about religious liberty academically for 20 years. It's something that is very uh, important to me, and I shouldn't think it would be surprising or scandalous that the president of the Southern Baptist Convention cares about what the Baptist faith the message articulates and is willing to support it. Yeah, and, and in a lot of ways, political donation in our country is a form of speech. It so is. It's, it's not as if you're really doing anything Thus different. Thus saith the Supreme Court. Yeah, and now, but you didn't give permission to his radical Democrat opponent to, like, use some of your online criticisms right. to bash Dusty. You you weren't meeting the the DNC of Oklahoma saying, like, all right, let's get Dusty together. Uh, no, nor would I in any way whatsoever. I I. Like I said, once it got to that general election, I was supportive of Dusty as a candidate. You know, by that same token, one internal um, tribalistic fight in 
in the SBC has been over plagiarism. Um, recently, you know, even the past couple of weeks as we're recording this, you guys might be listening at home a little later than when this has happened, but you'll recall the president of Harvard resigning in part over allegations of plagiarism in her doctoral thesis. Now, your predecessor, um, Ed Litton, was really dogged throughout his entire presidency um, because of not just allegations, but evidence of borrowed material from J.D. Greer. Uh, J.D. said that he he gave him permission for some of that. Um, and then, you know, by other tokens, it seemed like at times Ed was sharing stories of personal experiences that didn't belong to him. Um, some would say that you just outright defended him. I've got your, your tweet in front of me when you you did say there's a distinction. Uh, plagiarism and academic writing sermons, you said, plagiarism is a man-made standard invented centuries later. It's not sinful in and of itself. It's only sinful if you're bound by some sort of obligation to an authority who requires you to do this, do your work by this man-made standard. Now, others like David Schrock has written a book out of Founders Press, um, Brothers, We Are Not Plagiarists, where he argues that this is a form of stealing it's a form of lying. At the very least, it's a form of false witness. And David makes some, I think, implications from that that go extremely far. Like if you have a sermon prep team, you, can, you can't have anybody on it who's not an elder in your church. Probably a lot further than some of us with different polity are going to agree with. Um, but the, I think the accusation against you is that um, you, knowing that Ed had done this, He's on your side. And so you came out and defended something that is, well, I guess what what David and others have said. It's it's lying, it's stealing, it's false witness. Is that an example of tribalism and your co- contribution? I mean, what do we make of that whole fight, that whole debate? I think if you'll go back and read carefully everything I wrote about that, I actually wound up saying that what Ed did, uh, uh, assuming, I mean, the evidence seems to be there that he did the things that they said he did. Uh, that I said that what Ed did was wrong. I didn't exonerate Ed at all. Uh, I was exonerating other people. And um, a couple of things about that. Uh, There's a historian who has um, written about how um, Christianity down through the centuries has sort of swung back and forth between heavily intellectualized versions of Christianity and heavily emotional versions of Christianity. And I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, so, you know, it's not Pentecostal. We're not handling snakes. Nobody's speaking in tongues. Uh, but occasionally people clap. But, but uh-huh. yeah, yeah, sure, it's a, small, it's a small country Southern Baptist church that was in many ways anti-intellectual. Um, it, uh, it was seen as a virtue if the pastor got up on Sunday morning and said, I don't really know where this sermon's going to go. We'll see what the Spirit leads it to be. I would get fired for that. Uh, if There's I did a that great like Michael Scott quote where but he they says, sometimes up. I start a sentence and I don't know where it's going. Yeah, I just hope I find exactly. it along the way. We're not line. listening so, to this guy's notes. They we saw got that, God talking they, here. They saw that yeah. as the direct movement of the Spirit on the, on the pastor as he was preaching. Um, and uh, I, I think that we're at a point where, uh, and honestly, uh, although I have great appreciation for people who are part of the Reform movement, I think Reformed Christianity tends to excel in times that are of heavily intellectualized Christianity. And, um, and the fact of the matter is, uh, the whole idea that you could own words you said is a, is a post-biblical development. It's a post-biblical idea that those are your property, the, the words that you said. And I I th- and I'm fine with that. I mean, somebody who's uh, writing a song, Andrew Peterson ought to be able to own his work product. Uh, but I think it becomes more difficult when you are saying that all I'm doing is getting up here to proclaim to you the word of God. And then you're taking ownership of what you said was the word of God that you are proclaiming in front of people. I. I could not bring myself, I don't think, to copyright a book of sermons. And um, I, I just don't know how we take ownership of the gospel, how we take ownership of uh, ideas and thoughts that have existed long before us. These are things that we were all discipled into. And at the very least, I think you ought to have to make a case 
for how you come to the conclusion that you can own those ideas and that they can become yours. And certainly, I just think there's a there's an easily demonstrable difference between stealing someone's goat and stealing someone's sentence that they said last week. And so it still can be lying. If you're telling a story as though you were in it that, that, that you weren't, that that wasn't a story about you, it's not about the fact that somebody else said that. It's about the fact that you said something that wasn't true. But when Adrian Rogers says, if my bullet fits your gun, shoot it, or, or James Merritt says at the San Antonio Convention in, what, 2011, hey, if you like this sermon, go preach it at your church. Yeah. Is that something that we should agree to disagree on in the convention? Or is that something where we should say, you know what, actually, no, that that was wrong. I and don't to do think that, it's disqualifying wrong. for me. I don't think it's wrong. And who I've got in mind when I'm trying to defend this, I'm in Senegal planting churches among people who don't know beeswax about the Bible or about theology. And I would love for them to have some seminary-educated pastor who could come in and do their own work in the original languages and whatever else. But that person does not exist there because those institutions do not exist there. And I'm not going to tell a church that I planted, you're going to have to wait 10 years before you can have preaching on Sunday morning. And so instead, what mm. I'm doing is saying to church planters over there, let me show you some stuff that you can say that will proclaim the word and will instruct your congregation. And let me also be teaching you how to pray through and learn and develop some of these things on your own. And the, the gospel can flourish without PhDs in theology standing around somewhere. And I just think there's a need to push back against this over-intellectualization of, of church work. And, and even here in the U.S., I know some guys— whose strength as a pastor lies not in their preaching and in their academic development of their sermons and whatever else, who aren't lying to anybody. They're not breaking any kind of a contract to their church. When they come up on a, a Sunday morning and say, I'm preaching a series of sermons through this book, and it's clear that they're taking their material from somewhere else. Nobody thinks differently. They're not pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. They're not a great preacher, but they're at a church of 12 people, and they're great at pastoral ministry, and they're sharing the gospel and bringing people into that church. Not everybody has to be Athanasius or Augustine. Yeah. God can use people who need some help when it comes to the task of preaching. They should be working on their sermons. They should be pouring their heart into it, but the capacity is not the same for everybody. I just want to press on this just a, a little bit more because I, I think some of what we're trying to do here in the Baptist Review is we're trying to ask the questions that critics would ask, but ask them fairly and give you an opportunity yeah. to respond. I think people would say, okay, Bart, I I agree with you. And, and I'm not sure I... I fully agree with you, but this is not a debate between you and me. But let's say we can agree to disagree on um, on on some of these things, but maybe you know, like you said, preaching someone else's experience as your own—that's just that's just wrong. I haven't defended that. And I've never you, defended. And that. you said it wasn't right, Fred. And yet, Ed is you know goes to Southwestern, speaks in chapel. He is still the leader. There's not broad calls from, you know, his side of the convention for him to resign, for him to step down. Um, and so people have asked, well, what if his CBN-supported opponent had defeated him in a, a pretty close election and done the same thing? Would the response have been the same way? Would we have said, no, you need to resign I mean, what do you think tribalism was part of that, or were there bigger issues at play? Um, how how is that shaping? I guess what I'm asking is, what kind of repercussions should there be for a, what we think is a leader doing something wrong, and how does tribalism shape the way we respond? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'll say that I'll say that I think it has to be a very, very grave and serious wrong for the president of the Southern Baptist Convention to step down because there is no mechanism for the messengers to adjudicate whether it's a ser serious enough situation for that. And um, I also don't know the degree to which 
Southern Baptists, when they vote for the office of first vice president, are saying, we're, uh, we've thoroughly vetted this person to think that they might be someone who becomes president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I think, And let's be honest, like a third of the messengers vote on the first vice. Uh, exactly. I mean, That's, Ed is the president, and then there is a I guy. I say that as a former first vice president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't think anybody who elected me as first vice president thought we're doing this because we think Bart's the guy who could step in. If I, just think, Baptist I say, just think Jay Adkins is a snazzy dresser. Yeah. So that, <laughs> Did that Southern Baptist say, why. we really think that uh, Wiley Drake should be two heartbeats away from being our representative leader. So, I, so no offense if, to Wiley. If I'll just say this. If we want to have some clearly stated causes for the removal of the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, let's state what they are clearly in our governing documents, which we have not. And I mean, we had people who stayed on in spite of the fact that they supported the slavery of people who were African-Americans. <laughs> so uh, it's not like we haven't crossed some pretty serious bridges uh, for all of that in the past. Uh, I just, I, I think it's a very, I want to protect the rights of the messengers. The messengers elected that person. I don't think a noisy minority ought to be able to go digging through somebody's personal life or ministerial life in an effort to undo the results of an election. And I would feel the same way if it were somebody I did not vote for. Uh, I, and, I, and I'll say this. I mean, I'm, I'm working alongside people who are— uh, Philip Robertson has been a member of the Conservative Baptist Network. and he and I, council member. And, and he and I work together closely— and I would absolutely oppose anybody's effort to remove him from out of his position. Amen. We yeah, have a agreed. strong, healthy, positive working relationship and friendship. And uh, so, so it's not about— And his tenure is not marked by overt partisanship. He's tried to do it's the job not. the best of his ability, He's done a good just job. like you. He's done a fabulous job. Excellent job. And, I, and I'm 100% supportive of him. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Bart, we want to take a break. When we come back, we want to talk about this year's annual meeting and some of the changes that are being made to it and some of the things that you're looking forward to in Indianapolis this year. We'll take a quick break. Hey, listeners. Today, I want to talk to you about something truly special from one of our sponsors, Lifeline Children's Services. Lifeline believes that adoption is a divine calling. It's a way that God provides families for vulnerable children who deserve love and a sense of belonging. You see, Lifeline understands the bigger picture of adoption, that it's a crucial part of God's redemptive purpose. Sadly, with orphan numbers on the rise, there is an urgent need. And so we would ask you today to consider Christ's call to adoption through Lifeline Children's Services. Why Lifeline? Well, they're relational. They build connections with families, partners, and with local churches. And Lifeline is also gospel-centered. They put the love of Christ at the heart of everything that they do. And Lifeline promises to walk with you before, during, and after the adoption. Lifeline's Children's Services Adoptions Program Answering the call to share love, build families, because every child deserves a home. Visit lifelinechild.org slash adoption today to learn more and begin your adoption journey. Hey, I just want to take a minute to say something about our sponsor for this episode. The North American Mission Board has been putting out some new podcasts that I'm pretty sure if you're a pastor or a church leader, you're going to find really helpful. Trevin Wax has been doing this documentary style podcast called Reconstructing Faith. There are two seasons out right now. It's super engaging. Trevin is looking at the major challenges facing the church right now. Everything from the anti-institutional ethos of our culture to the phenomenon of de-churching, debates over masculinity, the prevalence of pornography, spiritual burnout, and on and on and on. You can listen to the Reconstructing Faith podcast on whatever podcast platform you prefer, and I'd encourage you to check it out. So Bart, the annual meeting, we talked about this uh, probably in a previous episode, they're all starting to run together. Uh, the annual meeting has really seen record numbers these last few years. I mean, it has just exploded, I think, as 
uh, people have begun to get more involved in uh, the, the the work of the convention as we've seen more and more things that, that people are very passionate about. So I just want to say we'll have to triple our current attendance to get record numbers. Oh, okay. But well, they uh, are increasing numbers. For these are unprecedented growing. times. Uh, increasing. Yes. <laughs> See, again, the Baptist history view. These are, these are precedented times. We Increasing numbers from where we were, we've seen an increase. Um, and we expect to see that again this year in Indianapolis uh, already and just some of the things that we're seeing. And so one of the things just real practically that people have begun to ask is as uh, travel and food and lodging and just the, the time, uh, I think, really becomes a, a burden on some churches and some pastors and some messengers, is there a day coming where remote uh, participation would be a possibility, and and in your opinion, is it still imperative that messengers are in the room to do the work of the convention? I think uh, I think no no technology exists today that I look at and say when that matures, we'll be able to do remote voting. And yes, I think it's imperative for messengers to come. And I think the, uh, there are two great examples of that in very recent history, one of them in the Southern Baptist Convention and one of them outside. Uh, we had a technology failure in the annual meeting Yes, where I most was, of the microphones, all the microphones stopped working We were both time, on stage for that. And most of them started uh, stopped working another time. And we were still able to guarantee that everyone had the opportunity to go to a microphone and speak and that everyone had the opportunity to vote. And you want to talk about eroding trust in the Southern Baptist Convention? Come to something important and have the technology fail and not everybody vote, not everybody's votes get counted. And there's no way to know whether everybody's votes got counted if you're doing remote participation in the annual meeting. I can't think of an example anywhere in our country where people don't fully trust the results of <laughs> electronic voting. So the other option that I was going to, the other uh, incident I was going to bring up was the Iowa Democratic, con con what do you call it? Caucus. The caucus. caucus. The yeah. I I Iowa Democratic Caucus that moved over to this new computerized remote voting system and it completely crashed. They did not get results from their election that whole night. And it was a debacle. And so I think um, it when you, when you put yourself in the shoes of the person wielding the gavel, I take my responsibility to the messenger body very seriously. My responsibility is to tell you, if you'll do blank, I will guarantee you one way or the other I'm going to extend to, to the messenger body the opportunity for discussion and voting. And if you are not in that room, I cannot make that guarantee. What I'm really concerned about is that we get to the point that we have some kind of remote voting system that works most of the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's the thing. People say, well, this usually works. It usually, yeah. But if you're the person whose job it is to extend that guarantee to people, you want be, to be able to say it never fails. 60% of the time, it works every time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. And so um, so my concern is that we say, okay, we're not going to do like full-on remote voting. You can't do this in your pajamas from your basement. But uh, we're going to hold regional meetings. At associational yeah. buildings, uh, at churches. Some, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the association, do you know how many associational buildings there are? Not, the yeah. Southern Baptist? To, uh, Roughly a billion. Thousands upon thousands <laughs> of them. And so we have 10 microphones and we have trouble managing that. How are you going to get people? And people are going to come out of that and say, well, nobody was able to speak. Our, our association had three people who were waiting to speak. Live well, from the Shim Creek Baptist the, Association. I've always known Baptist associations to be very forward-thinking on technology and organizing. <laughs> That's what uh, I'm saying. But even if it all works, you're at microphone 163. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, right. Most people are not going to get recognized. Yeah. And it's going to be something that really erodes trust whenever that happens. But... But beyond all of that, even, uh, when you, if you decide to do that, some people would look and say, but here are the people who can't come to the big annual meeting who could come to that meeting. Right. At their Smaller association. meeting. That's what I hear okay. more of, yeah. But I'm thinking about the person 
who does go to the annual meeting, who decides that year, okay, now I'm not going to do that because I can just go to the county seat and do that. But then the system fails them. And we they would have had a vote counted, and now they have a vote that's not counted. We also need to say that the annual meeting is not just a series of successive votes. So much takes place here that's good. that binds us in cooperation. What do we all say? The annual meeting is a big family reunion. It is. Once we stop seeing each other, stop talking to each other, we are sowing the seeds of fracture when we stop gathering. Well, we become we, anonymous. Yeah. Well, we, we become... saw that in COVID when our churches stopped gathering. It frayed the edges of our our unity, or or maybe not our unity, but just our our love for one another, our commitment to one another. To think that that won't happen in the SBC if suddenly, you know, as a millennial, people are going to do this in their pajamas. You know, I mean, they're going, they're going to find a way to not really connect. We're not really plug in. And you'd have 2,000, 3,000 person conventions and it would be. If, yeah. Would I, be. I said a while ago that I thought the affinity groups could be a positive development. That's where the affinity groups are able to exist. They, you have yeah, the true. Hispanic celebration and the African American fellowship and the Asian American gathering and and yet nine marks at nine. Uh, Baptist College of Baptist yeah. 21. All the seminaries. All the seminaries. travel to seminary yeah. events or to Baptist College events or to affinity group events if they had to make a separate trip for all of these things? Do it all in one place. Even even groups I'm not a part of, even if, if you want to talk about the Conservative Baptist Network, their big meetings at the annual meeting. That's where they are able to get all their people together. And, and so, notably, when they've met in other places, their crowds have been... Not the same, but they've been packed for annual meetings. They have been. And so uh, and so I just don't think there's really any replacement for, for being, in the room. being there in person. Yeah. Bart, Bart you've been a, a, even before your presidency, you were a huge proponent of the annual meeting. We've just heard reasons for that now. Uh, and I know that this is something that you uh, love and your family has been a part of. When was the last time you missed an annual meeting? Phoenix, uh, not the last time we were in Phoenix, but the time before that when we were in Phoenix. Okay. All right. I'll have to go back and... I've I've missed once in the past 20 years. Okay. All right. Is there anything about the annual meeting? Now that you're president, you get the opportunity to speak into some of what happens at the annual meeting, how that meeting kind of goes, how the days are structured. Is there anything about it that that bugs you that you would say, I want to change, would change? Let me first say what bugs me about being the president, okay? And also about being on the resolutions committee and chairing the resolutions committee. It's the been festivus it's episode. Been four years. Get the poll. It's been four years since I really got to enjoy the exhibit hall. Uh, and yeah. I love the exhibit hall. And yeah. I'm, you know, if I'm thankful that you only get two terms as president because I'm about to run out of ink pens and highlighters uh, and uh-huh. squeeze balls. Uh-huh. And yeah. so yeah. I need to get back to where I have some free time to go through the exhibit hall and just last two years we've had the biggest stuff. exhibit halls in history. I know. And got I, some good and folks I, running that. And thing. All I can do is talk about it. I, yeah. yeah. Who is it who winds that up? Uh, Someone wonderful. Yes. So it's it's your wife, and she does an amazing <laughs> job. But um, I, I'm um, I'll, I'll tell you that um, one of the things that I'm thankful that we're doing is adding another session this year. You may mm-hmm. wind up asking about that later on. I don't no, know. No, I think you can answer but, that. But um, the, the annual meeting this past year was too dense. Uh, it's too packed tight with things. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, and, I, and I'll just, uh, y'all can decide whether your podcast is rated for having this information in here or not. Rated B just, for Bart. That's right. That's right. So uh, being human beings, those of us who are conducting the business on the platform occasionally need a bathroom break. And we planned, we, we didn't have panel discussions and we didn't have theme interpretations and we didn't have all this extra stuff. We were conducting business pretty much the whole time that we were there. And occasionally our eyeballs were floating in our heads and we were like, we need to get to a point where somebody sings a song or something. So we... And you heard it here first. That's right. Here. Rated B for bathroom. That's right. And and not only that, but the fact of the matter is um, nobody knows what's going to happen in the annual meeting until it happens. Until it happens, yeah. And every once in a while, just to know the parliamentary implications or whatever else... You need a moment that I and the parliamentarians can yeah. step off the side of the platform and say, what just happened? And how does that affect what we're going to do later on? 
And so adding another session, I, I promise you, I'm not going to fill the annual meeting with a bunch of fluff. We're just going to have some breaks in there where we can step down and get a sip of water and uh, maybe run the restroom right quick and also say the business that we conducted just now, how does that affect the business that we're going to conduct in the next session or, or whatever. So just a little bit of downtime for the business personality to get off of this platform. Well, I think that's not only a benefit for the, for the platform, for those on the platform. I think that's a benefit for the messengers. I think there's a great, I think there's great wisdom in sometimes saying, we're going to, we're going to take a minute and everybody stand at ease and take a deep breath and yeah. talk amongst yourselves and get up and stretch because it, it can, you're exactly right. And I think in the last several years, but last year in particular, it, it was it was very heavy in the room. We were dealing with significant issues mm -hmm. and significant things, and and it does whether you know it or not. It takes a toll on every person in the room as those decisions are being made. And so I do think providing a little bit of extra time, providing a little bit of extra breathing room, providing a little bit of extra space, not only for the platform but for the messengers, is is, is a good thing. One thing I want to ask has to do with entities. This is actually kind of a two parter here. One of the reasons I think people are advocating for remote voting is because there's been an insinuation or even an accusation at times that entities are putting their thumbs on the scale. They send all of their employees who also come as messengers of their churches and they vote. Or NAM has been accused of flying in you know, thousands of church planters um, to vote a certain way. Now, there's no evidence given of these things, just, just accusation made. Um, but then even beyond that, you know, when we, I mean, I can just tell you, I worked at an entity as director of communications marketing at, at Southeastern. When it comes time to register for hotels, everyone should know that the, one of the reasons it's hard, every single entity who has to be there to do the work that they do, plus the exhibitors, they are on the website waiting for the moment when those hotels open up everyone is supposed to register for as many rooms as possible as they can right there in the moment. And then they'll, you know, cover it after the fact. But it, some people feel like then because of that, well, entities have the good hotels, entities are coming and voting. So should we change the way that that works? I mean, should entity employees maybe be banned from voting? Should we stop our church planners from voting at the convention until they're no longer being funded by an entity to vote. Um, are those concerns, are those questions legitimate? I think it absolutely lies within the right of the messenger body to make any of those changes if they choose to do so. Uh, I think, though, it's based upon some false premises uh, because uh, as someone who served as a trustee of more than one entity, uh, if you think that everybody who works for an entity agrees with the leadership of that entity, <laughs> you have not interacted very much yeah, yeah. with people yeah. who work yeah. at entities. Now, I'm sure that we could say that every international mission board missionary would be someone who would not vote against, who would not vote in favor of the abolition of the international mission board and the loss of their job. But just because Paul Chipwood thinks something ought to happen does not mean that anybody who's wearing an IMB badge at the booth in the exhibit hall is going to go in and vote exactly the way that they've been instructed to do. We are Baptists. We are an independent lot. And I can just say that the chief problem with conspiracy theories about the Southern Baptist Convention that are an, an ancient thing that go back a long time is— Nobody can organize Southern Baptists that well. We are simply too uh, uh, irascible uh, to, be, to be people who can be lined up like that. And uh, I think we've probably all experienced employees of entities complaining about leadership of entities <laughs> too much for us to think that. So if, if Southern Baptists want to say, hey, if you're a church planner with the North American Mission Board, you can't vote until you're not being supported anymore. It's the right of the messengers to do that. Uh, but also, wouldn't it kind of violate the church's right to send their own messages, think, even if they're a, I think, I think they're I think, Well, really, unless you're saying if that church is getting support, they can't send messengers at all. Uh, but... Um, and I'm just going to say, I think it's the right of the messengers to make that kind of choice. But if you're making that kind of choice because you're assuming they're all voting that the they're way. all a voting yeah. block, then I, I think you're really uh, disrespecting 
the individual personalities and the and and the whole lot our, our idea is that you're supposed to pray about these things and let the spirit of God lead you. And so uh, how insulting it is to suggest that uh, the people who work for our entities have abandoned that. And if they can't vote, they can't be messengers. And if they can't be messengers, I can I can think of seven or eight instances in the last um, ten years that I've been going and actively engaged with the convention where entity employees have made significant motions and spoken to issues and times when it wasn't altogether clear in a debate what the truth was or what direction we should go in and um and it was an entity employee who stood up and said let me give you some insight into this thing um that without it the messengers would have been worse off and less informed in their voting on top of the fact that there 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 really is no way to verify at all who and, these people are voting for there's this is an anonymous ballot and i mean i will say that when i taught baptist history at southwestern seminary I always gave this instruction to my classes. I said, you know, there are there are three categories of people who are attending the SBC and voting. There are people whose job require them to be there. Uh, whose job requires them, they have to go. They have to be there. They have to vote. There are people whose job will pay for them to be there. That's somebody like me. My church provides a convention travel yep. allowance to me. So my church will cover the cost. Well, my church has never covered all of the costs. There's an amount in our budget Partial. that goes yeah, yeah, toward yeah. Sure. covering my cost to attend the SBC annual meeting. And um, But then the other group of people are the people who pay to go. They're paying out of their pocket for a hotel room. They're paying out of their pocket for travel. Uh, they're, they're taking time off from their job to go be there. So they're burning up vacation days. And so I'll just say this. I, I am concerned if the vast preponderance of messengers are made up of category one or yeah. even category one and category two. But the answer to that is not to exclude people. The answer to that is for churches to make it an important priority to send people to the annual meeting. Uh, when they get to the meeting, what should they expect in terms of reporting and transparency from entities? There, there has been a complaint, and I'll just tell you, this is my personal complaint that we sit in the room and listen to marketing pitches. We're not getting real reports, uh, not all the time. We're, we're not getting transparency about hard decisions. In fact, this year, I know I sat through um, a report for one of our entities, and then not a month after we got home, there was a major announcement about the shuttering of a service that hundreds, thousands of, of, of Southern Baptist churches use. We didn't hear a word of it at the convention what does an an ideal report, what should we expect from them when we get there? Well, it's a great question. Um, I, I do think that it would be better if our entities uh, touched upon substantive issues, especially if they know that things are coming in the pipeline. There is an opportunity for people to ask questions, but a lot of times people are not informed uh, enough to know which questions they should ask or want to ask. Um I will say this year, everybody who wanted to ask a question got to ask a question. I don't think we shut the time off much at all if we did it all during the question time. Uh, and in fact, the same question got asked over and over again of a lot of the entity leaders because there was room for people to come ask whatever they wanted to ask. Is, is that uh, a problem, the sort of hijacking of our Q&A for pet issues that really have nothing to do with that entity's mission? It's not a problem. It's just an unintended consequence of our polity. And I'll keep the polity even if it has unintended consequences. I, I think some groups use the annual meeting to recruit. They'll do something that um, that that 13,000 of the 14,000 people roll their eyes at. But if a 1,000 of those people are really interested in what they're doing, that's a big recruiting day for them. Yeah. So Cameras and microphones on the floor, yeah. loading up mics to yeah. ask the same questions. It's but pretty transparently any, obvious. Any cure would be worse than the disease. So mm, uh, that's mm, good. So that's I want good. us to I want us to leave those microphones open for people to come and ask things. I do think that um, in in terms of reporting, I, I think the 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 complaint you're making is uh, understandable. It's a real one. I've felt that way myself sometimes in the past. It is marketing to some degree, but I'll just say this: 
we are not dying from a lack of inspiration, or we're not dying from too much inspiration to try to get people to buy into the vision of what our entities are doing. And I think we might have to do less marketing uh, if we were in a spot where uh, we just talked earlier about Southern Baptist education in another episode uh, where Rob Collinsworth was asking me, how are we going to accomplish all of this? And so in a day and time where nobody else can be counted on in local churches to tell the stories of these entities and why they deserve support, I think it maybe is a pretty good priority for them to say, hey, instead of telling you about footnote four on the financial statement, uh, we'd like to tell you why we exist and what we're trying to do so you would know why we would be supportive. I think, a good mix. I think we should accomplish both things. Part of the way, the last thing I'll say is this. A lot of the things that people come and say, we're never told about blank, is actually printed in the SBC annual that is published every year after the meeting. And not very many people go look at it. I had a college professor, and you've probably seen this, had a T-shirt that just said, it's in the syllabus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like the, a lot of the questions that you're at, it's there if you know where to look. It's just finding where to look. A lot of people don't know that every entity is audited every year, and the results of the audit are printed in the SBC annual every year. Bart, I want to kind of wrap this uh, interview with one kind of final question. Obviously, we're leading up to Indianapolis a couple months away from the annual meeting in Indianapolis, and there are lots of big things that are happening there. We've talked about constitutional amendments. I know there are two uh, uh, presidential appointed task force that have been that are going to bank their reports on top of all of the other entity reports and things that are happening. If there's a pastor listening, a, a Southern Baptist, a messenger listening, who's kind of right now maybe on the fence. Maybe they're just going, ah, I want to go, but I've got some other things that, you know, are kind of, could take priority in the summer. And and should I, should I go, what, what, how would you encourage uh, just Southern Baptist or Southern Baptist pastor or leader or somebody to come to the annual meeting in Indianapolis and, and, and maybe even encourage them uh, in, in what attitude to approach our meeting with? This is the most important election in the history of the universe. No, no I'm sorry. That's what, <laughs> until, that's what, until next year. That's what, until next that's year. what everybody says what everybody every says. year, right? This you is have the to best. participate because this right. is the most this important, the most important one. Um, let me just tell you why it is. When Bart's not president, yeah. why he goes every year to the annual that's meeting. That's good, yeah. Okay. Um, the, the first and foremost reason is this. Um, first Baptist Farmersville if we kept the money that we sent through the cooperative program, could hire two more staff members onto our staff, at least. And if I had two staff members, I would look in on what they were doing at least once a year to have some kind of input in, in the decisions that they're making or to examine the things that they're doing. And so, um, you know, if... If your church gives $50 a year through the cooperative program, it's probably harder for me to make the case. But if you are engaged in the cooperative work of the Southern Baptist Convention, then it is a good investment for you to come to the annual meeting, to have the opportunity to, have, to be informed and to have your say. And beyond all of that, uh, it is just an amazing opportunity for fellowship and growth. And um, even if you come year one and you don't really know anybody, uh, by year two you can, and you meet other people who are similarly situated to you and you create friendships there that can last for a long time. And uh, it would, I said, you know, it'd be different if we were over-inspired, but I say it would also be different if we're over-connected, but consistently pastors are reporting that they're isolated and yeah, lonely. lonely, yeah. Reporting that they, that they wish they had peers who could encourage them and speak into their life. And I'll tell you, if there's anything that we can say conclusively after a couple of decades of messing around with it, it's that interacting with somebody on a social media platform does not fill whatever void it is no, that you have in absolutely. your heart for that. That's right on. Uh, it's got to be something that you do in person with people. Uh, this struck home to me in my mom's latter days of her Alzheimer's and her illness, where we had an iPad set up with FaceTime, where we and she wouldn't even pay attention to it. But if you showed up in her room, you had her complete attention, and she was delighted that you were there. Mm. There is something deep in your brain, deep in the way that God made you, that needs to interact person-on-person person with people. And so if you're lonely and isolated as a pastor, make an effort to come to this meeting 
where you can sit beside people like you and maybe have a chance to make a connection and go to some of the and breakout the pastors meetings. conference. Yeah. yeah. Be the encouraged. Be encouraged by what happens at the pastor's conference, the singing. Man, I, I was so blessed by James Cheeseman and the worship that we had this last year. The and prayer room if you need it. The prayer room is there if you need it. You can, Huge ministry. To and pastors. if you want to pray for somebody else, man, go to the IMB booth, go to the NAM booth, meet some of the people who are on the tip of the spear for Southern Baptists. And I just think it uh, it's not just about voting on something. It's not just a political caucus. I think it'll do your heart and your spirit good to come to the annual meeting. Bart, we are so thankful for your leadership and for the time that you've given us uh, to answer, I think, hard questions, but necessary questions and good questions. Uh, and uh, really, I know that uh, I've been blessed by our friendship and have been blessed by our conversation here on The Baptist Review. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Baptist Review Podcast. The Baptist Review is committed to helping facilitate better conversation towards a better convention. For more information about The Baptist Review, you can check out our website, thebaptistreview.com. <laughs>